All right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Yeah? Colossians chapter 3 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible, find one. There should be one in the pew rack close to you somewhere. Someone nearby has a Bible. You need to be close to a Bible so you can follow along as we study God's Word to get together this morning. If you don't have a Bible at all, there should be some in the pew rack somewhere near you, and we would love to give that to you. Take it home, read it, study it, hear God speak through His Word to you in your private time. Last week in Colossians chapter 3, we circled back to some indicative statements that serve as the foundation for the imperatives in this section. To say it another way, Paul is constantly, constantly reminding the Colossian believers who they are in Christ before he calls them to do anything. And this is the gospel pattern. We don't do things in order to become someone. We do these things because we are someone. We don't work our way into good standing with God. We are granted good standing with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we behave accordingly. We also, in the text last week, saw some community implications about how our new identity in Christ brings us together as one family. The walls of separation are broken down when our primary identity is as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be a lesson that the Lord is really trying to teach us, as this message has come to us from a number of different angles over the last few weeks. Joe T. in particular was intrigued that I mentioned last Sunday in the sermon, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Like He didn't know that was coming, and yet last weekend that was part of his Life University lesson about the gospel breaking down walls that would divide us and bringing us together. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ not only reconciles us to the Father, but it reconciles us to one another if we see our primary identity as being in Jesus Christ. And then finally last week we finished with this amazing summary statement in the text that says, Christ is all and in all. In Christ you are a new creature. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The question is, are you living as a new creature? The question is, are you in Christ? Christ is all. He is everything you need. He is enough. He has already died for our sins. He has been buried and he has been raised to life. Christ is all. And Christ is in all. The walls of separation are broken down. When we focus on Christ, when we pursue Christ, when we live like Christ, we will be brought together. Well, if you have been a little confused over the last few weeks, as I've tried to explain the interplay between indicative statements of fact and imperative commands in the text... I think that's going to be cleared up in the text today. The text that we're going to look at today brings them together in the same breath. It states clearly the reality of our identity and position in Christ in an incredible way and then immediately calls us to live that out in some very tangible and practical ways. There's not a lot of new in the text today, but there is a simplicity and a clarity to the text that I think will drive home the things we've been seeing over the last few weeks. I think today is going to be super helpful for all of us in our study of Colossians. I think some things that may not have connected yet are going to connect today by God's grace just because of how simple and clear the text is uh, that we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. We're going to pay close attention to verses 12, 13, and 14. But before I do that, I want to remind you that this whole letter, the whole letter of Colossians is one big thought. One big thought that was probably delivered to the Colossian believers initially in one single action, in one simple reading. We have had our noses pretty close to it 
right? We've been studying it kind of like this since the beginning of our time in this book. And because we've been like this, it's fairly easy to miss the big picture. And so I want to encourage you this week sometime to read through the whole letter from beginning to end uh, in one shot sometime this week. It will take you less than 15 minutes. It, could pro- it will probably take you less than 10 minutes uh, to read through the whole letter in one shot so you get the big picture. And I'm trying to do that in a smaller way today by reading most of chapter 3 to you so that you get some of the context. So let's read together in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, paying very close attention to 12, 13, and 14. This is what God's Word says, Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we stand amazed at your extravagant grace. We recognize that apart from Christ, we are condemned. Sinners who deserve only your wrath, only your judgment for all of eternity. We are rebels who have earned severe punishment. And yet, we've been chosen by you. Redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, adopted as your children. You have set us apart as holy devoted to you, and you love us. You love us, and we are utterly amazed and profoundly grateful. Help us, as those who are chosen, holy, and beloved, to put on the attributes that you outline in this text. Help us to live like Christ as we bear with one another and forgive one another. More than anything, help us to put on love, your kind of self-sacrificing love, that was ultimately demonstrated on the cross. 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to start in verse 12. We're kind of zoomed in closely on 12, 13, and 14 today. And if you notice, the very first word in verse 12 is so. And that is a connecting word that is sometimes translated as therefore, which we know, we know at this point, connects the current thought with the previous thought and advances the argument. This therefore, or so, reaches back to what we talked about last week, namely the Colossian believers' identities In Christ. He said last week, they have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. They have put on the new self. We who are in Christ have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. We have, as those who are in Christ, put on the new self. And what you're about to see in this text is the next step in that argument. But before he moves on to the imperative commands to action, he beats the drum one more time. For the indicative identity. He goes back to the indicative statement of identity for those who are in Christ. Look what he says, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. This is wonderful. This is an absolutely wonderful statement right here. There are two big ideas that I want you to see in the first part of verse 12. First is this. Paul, once again, roots the imperative in the indicative. To say it another way, he grounds the call to action in the reality of their identity. Or to say it a third way, he reminds them who they are before he tells them what to do. And that is the way it must work. He says, as those who have been put on. That's what you're supposed to do. It's not put on these virtues and you will become to be considered as God's children He doesn't say, do these things in order to become one of God's children. Rather, he says, as God's children, as chosen, holy, and beloved, do this. This is who you are. Now, this is how you should live. And it always goes this way, folks. Even even back in the Old Testament, the law didn't come to the people until after they had been delivered from Egypt. Like th- think about this. When the people were enslaved in Egypt, they were under the oppression of Pharaoh. God didn't give them the law and say, if you will just follow all these rules, if you will obey my commands completely and prove yourselves to me, then I will show you grace and bring you out of Egypt. Aren't you thankful it didn't go that way? Where would Israel still be if it went that way? They would still be in Egypt, right? But rather, what does God do? He comes and delivers them. First of all, he exercises his power and authority in miraculous ways to bring them out of Egypt, to bring them out of oppression. He delivers them and then says to them, I have redeemed, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, this is how you live as my people. This is how you live as my redeemed people, as my delivered people. I want you to see that as you read the Bible, not just in Colossians, not just in Paul's letters, not just in the New Testament, but everywhere from cover to cover, you will see that the indicative is always the grounds for the imperative. The work of God in creating a people for himself is always the basis for his commandments. He makes you his own and then tells you how to live as his people. And that is a hopeful message. Because if you reverse that, there is no hope for anyone. If he were to say, if you'll just live the right way, then I'll make you mine. None of us would ever be his. 
I'm thankful that that's not the way the gospel works. So first of all, Paul roots the imperative in the indicative. But second thing I want you to see in this is that this identity that he is talking about when he says that they are chosen of God, holy and beloved is absolutely incredible. It is absolutely incredible. The language here is fascinating, especially when you consider that most of the recipients of this letter come from a Gentile background. Most of the followers of Jesus in Colossae didn't grow up in Judaism. They were not Abraham's descendants. They were outsiders. They were Gentiles, and yet they have been redeemed by God's grace. And all the words that Paul uses here when he says, chosen of God, holy, and beloved, all of these are words that are used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. Think about this for a minute. He says to this Gentile body, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. All in a reference to a people who were put off, who were outside, who were cut off, and yet now have this identity as insiders, as part of the family. All the Gentiles had ever known was being on the outside of the circle. And now Paul reminds them, you're on the inside. You're on the inside because of Jesus. You're on the inside because of God's grace. I made reference to this text last week, the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to turn there. It should just be a couple of pages over. Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of Ephesians chapter 2 is gospel gold. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which, we, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, right? It's gold, isn't it? And then, after stating all these truths about what God has done for us in Christ, in verse 11, he starts to spell out how we should live as a result of that. And he starts with the word, therefore, Look at it, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And what I want you to be looking for is the statements specifically to the Gentiles who were on the outside but have now been brought in by God's grace through the gospel. They were on the outside, but now they've been brought in and received the promises. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision... By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Like that's what they've known as Gentiles. All along that's what they've known. But look at verse 13. Starts with the beautiful word, but. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile both of them in one body to God through the cross, by, ha- by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Pay careful attention to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Don't you love what's going on there? 
He says, through Christ, he says to largely Gentile people, through Christ, you've been brought into family with, with Christ. You've been brought into the family of God. And you've been brought into this broader family of the people of God from various backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, he says, in Colossians, barbarians, Scythians, all these different kind of folks brought together because of the gospel. So Paul says to the church at Colossae in chapter 3, He says, you are chosen of God, holy and beloved. Just like Israel of old, you're on the inside. You are part of the family of God because of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Let's think about those three phrases. First, he says, we have been chosen of God. And he doesn't just say, this doesn't just apply to the Colossian believers. This applies to us who are in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, who have been redeemed by God's grace, who have faith in Jesus Christ, this applies to us. We are chosen of God. Why would he choose us? Because we're so handsome and good looking? Because we're so smart and clever? Why would he choose us? The biblical answer to that is simply because of his good pleasure. Simply because he wanted to. Not because of anything good in us. Not because of anything special in us. But only because of his good pleasure. I read a story that was talking about this idea of being chosen of God. The story was about two little kids who were fighting on the school playground. One of those kids was adopted and had been being ridiculed for being adopted. And shot back to the other kid saying something along the lines of, Well, my parents wanted me. They chose me. Yours just got stuck with you. (laughs) Now, I don't know that that's great theology, and I wouldn't recommend it as a strategy on the playground. But the Father did choose us. He wanted us. He chose us and adopted us into his family. That's amazing. Not only are we chosen of God, we are holy. He declares that. As those who are chosen of God, who are holy. We are holy, church. That word, I remember when I was studying it in, in college, the professor talked about a carrot. He said, if you, if you put a carrot on the cutting board and you take the knife to it and you cut part of the carrot and you slide it over, this is, this is the part of the carrot that I'm going to use in the recipe. That's the idea of holiness. Something that has been separated from the rest and, and dedicated for a purpose. That's the idea. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean without sin or without blemish here. It's not a reference necessarily to righteousness. It, it's, a re, it, it's, it's a reference to usefulness of intention. That's who we are as God's people, as the redeemed of Christ. We are holy. We are set aside for his purpose. We've, we've been set over here to be used by him for a special purpose. That's good, right? You, you like this? Like I'm saying good things about you today. I don't always do that. This is, this is good stuff. You are, if you are in Christ, I'm not, I'm not going to say it about everybody. If you are in Christ, you are chosen of God and you are holy. And then he says this, we are beloved. Our heavenly father loves us. That ought to blow your mind. And it doesn't anymore. We talk about this so much. We talk so much about how God loves us that we cease to be amazed at his love. His love is absolutely amazing. 
When we think about what we deserve, his love is absolutely amazing. And he has demonstrated his love a thousand ways in our lives every single day we live. But the greatest demonstration of his love was the cross. In fact, the Bible says that God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, not after we had cleaned it up, not after we had gotten our acts together, not after we had kept the law, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a demonstration of God's love. Chosen of God. Holy. Beloved. This is who you are if you are in Christ. The question is, are you in Christ? If not, I will invite you three more times today to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. Everyone in the room who is in Christ was not, was on the outside and has been brought in by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, I'll invite you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Come to be in Christ today. If you are, though, and that's primarily the group that I'm speaking to. It's primarily the group to whom this text is written. If you are in Christ, let's rejoice over this bit of reality, right? Like, let's, let's smile and savor for a minute that God says of us, you are chosen of God, holy and beloved. That's good, right? Laura, Laura made apple dumplings last night that we're going to have at lunch today. Oh, I can't wait. They are just so good. Like, I feel like I could taste it already a little bit. In fact, I feel like my, my pillow was extra slobbery this, this morning when I got up because I'm kind of thinking about it all night. Like, let's delight in this reality of our position in Christ. If you are in Christ, chosen of God, holy, beloved. But let's not merely delight in it. Let's not merely rejoice in it. Look what he says in the text. He says, Therefore, or so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There's only one imperative verb in the text that we're looking at today. There's only one command in the text that we're looking at today, and it's right here, put on. In other words, as those who are chosen, holy, and beloved... Put on clothes that are in accordance with that identity. Does that make sense? We've already been told in the text that there's some stuff we need to take off. There's some stuff we need to put aside. Some stuff we even need to put to death in the text, it says. Take off the old clothes that the old man wore. And here, we're called to put on new clothes that new men wear. We're called to put on clothes that fit with this new identity. In an interesting note, I read some stuff about how the early church would do this at a person's baptism. You know, in, in, in the first century, people didn't have a closet full of clothes. They didn't have dresser drawers full of, full of clothes. They basically had one set of clothes, probably. And, and when someone came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were ready to follow him in baptism, they would literally take off the old clothes that belonged to that old way of life. And they would be given a new set of clothes, clean clothes to put on after their baptism. Like they're a new man with new clothes. 
and they need new clothes to fit the new man. Now, I'm not talking here about physical clothes at all, right? This text, that's a, that's a small picture of a spiritual reality, right? So, so do not walk away with this saying, the preacher said we need to wear different kinds of clothes. No, no, no. Talking figuratively here about the clothes that fit with the new man. The old clothes of the old man don't make any sense on a new man. Why in the world would you take a bath and put on old clothes? You put on clean clothes, right? And there are clothes that fit with the new cleanliness that is yours in Christ. So, here in this verse, we are called to put on these attributes, these characteristics. Look at them. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, some of you are all immediately already like, hmm, this sounds like fruit of the Spirit, kind of. It's kind of a similar kind of list. It has a similar tone, and it does. True. Not exactly the same, but similar. Compassion. This word, when it says put on a heart of compassion, is interesting because the word for heart there is like guts. We, we, like a literal translation would be like your, your innards. And so it's this concept when taken together with heartfelt and compassion, it's this idea of a deep gut level feeling of compassion. In other words, as the new man, as chosen of God, holy and beloved, we are to have deep gut level compassion for those around us. We must be, as new creatures, concerned about the suffering that is around us. John Piper says brilliantly, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. I'm so thankful for that last part. But I'm also thankful for the first part. It's part of what it looks like to be the new man is to have a heart, deep gut-level compassion for suffering, all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. Compassion and kindness. This word for kindness is used a couple times in Romans chapter 2 to refer to the kindness and patience of God that is intended to lead us to repentance. The kindness and patience of God that does not just immediately smite us because of our sin, but is patient with us and tolerant toward us in order to bring us to repentance. That should mark our lives as new people. Kindness and humility. Humility was not a virtue in the Roman world in the first century. Humility was a uniquely Christian virtue. It means to not necessarily think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less, as is often said. It's not to have a low view of yourself. It's just to have less view of yourself and more concern for the people around you. This is the word humility that is used in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, to describe Paul's service in Asia. When he describes his suffering with tears and trials, he says, I served with humility, putting your needs above my own. Paul says, I was willing to suffer for your sake. I was willing to go through these trials for your sake. That's what humility looks like. Gentleness. John MacArthur has a great line about gentleness. He says, a gentle person knows he is a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens of others' sin, the the burdens others' sin may impose upon him. He's recognizing, I'm a sinner amongst a bunch of sinners and there's going to be burdens on me because of that. We're patient, gentle. Patient is the last one. Uh, That word can also be translated as endurance or steadfastness or perseverance or long-suffering. Some of you King James folks probably see long-suffering there. It's the idea of being slow to avenge wrongdoing. Like when you've been done wrong, being patient means being slow to bring about vengeance or even unconcerned about vengeance to leave that vengeance unto the Lord. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? 
So as new people who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, we are to put these clothes on, these attributes, these characteristics of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And this outfit is perfectly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? These attributes and these characteristics are seen perfectly in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, hear me, is much more than our example, but he is not less than our example. Much more than our example, he's our Redeemer, he's our Savior, he's our Lord. But he is also our example of how we should live. He is the one we should follow after. And we can tell story after story from the Gospels about the humility, patience, gentleness, and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we not? Think some of those through with me. You remember the story where there are some parents who are bringing little children to Jesus so that he, he might touch them, he might bless them? And you remember how his own disciples like get in the way and they rebuke these parents as if the master doesn't have time for these little children. He doesn't have time to waste his time on these little ones. They're just messy. And Jesus rebukes the disciples and what does he say? Permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them because the kingdom belongs to such as these, right? You guys could learn a thing or two from these kids. And Jesus takes them in his arms and he blesses them. Jesus shows these kind of attributes in that scene. What about the scene we talked about a few weeks ago with the woman caught in adultery? After he bends down and writes in, in, the, in the dirt, and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And all these men leave from the place. And he says, who is left to condemn you? And there's no one left but him. And he could. He could condemn her. He's the righteous one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The reason why I told the story a couple weeks ago was that last part, go and sin no more. But let's not miss in the midst of that the lesson about Jesus' humility and compassion and kindness and patience in that story. What about with the man born blind? As he wrestles with the, with the impact of his healing and his standing in the synagogue and all this business with his parents, Jesus shows compassion for not just the man who is born blind, but countless others who are experiencing physical ailments throughout the Gospels. He heals them. He sets them free. He unstops their ears and opens their eyes and looses their tongues. He sets the demon possessed free. Jesus exercises all of these things perfectly. Or what about Lazarus' tomb? Remember that scene? Jesus' buddy Lazarus has died and he finally shows up after he's been dead for four days and everyone's going bananas. They're all mourning and crying. It's falling apart. And Jesus weeps along with them and over the loss and over the pain of death. Jesus raises his friend from the dead. I'm telling you that all of these attributes, all of these characteristics are seen in the life of Jesus. And the attributes and characteristics that are listed in Colossians chapter 3, it's not an exhaustive list. But I think it would suffice to say that we are called in this text to put on Christ-likeness. To put on Christ-likeness in our attitudes and in our character. I want you to notice something else about this list. As you look at those words, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all of this implies community and relationship. None of these qualities can be demonstrated in isolation, right? Can you show kindness on an island by yourself? No, you got to have some other people around to show kindness. Can you demonstrate patience? Well, maybe with yourself. 
But all of this implies community, and does it not also imply imperfect community? Doesn't all of this imply that we are called to live together and that when we live together, it's going to be messy and there's going to be a need for compassion, going to be a need for patience, going to be a need for gentleness? This implies community and relationship and implies that community and relationships will not be perfect. I've heard this little poem three times over the last two weeks from three disconnected sources, and I think there's some truth to it. It goes like this. To dwell above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, well, that's a different story. Right? We, we, we dwell below with the saints we know. And sometimes it's hard. And so we must put on humility. We must put on gentleness. We must put on kindness and patience with one another. We must put on these new clothes. So my question is, how are we doing with this? Like as a body, are we wearing those kind of clothes? How are you doing as an individual? Are, you, are these the clothes that we're wearing? If not, put them on. That's who you are. Chosen, holy, beloved, put on these kind of clothes. And putting, the text says that putting on these attributes, putting on these clothes, will empower us to do two things according to the text. Verse 13, bearing with one another. This is, this is not an imperative command. This is wrapped up in what it looks like to put on. This is what happens when you put on these new clothes. You will bear with one another. The word here is sometimes translated as tolerate or put up with one another. Throughout the New Testament, we see that within the church, there will always be stronger brothers and weaker brothers. And it is always the stronger brother's responsibility to bear with, to put up with, to tolerate the weaker brother. And also to seek to bring that weaker brother to greater levels of maturity through encouragement and instruction. You hear me clearly on that? In the church, there will always be stronger brothers and weaker brothers. And it is always the stronger brother's responsibility to tolerate, to put up with, to bear with the weaker brother. But that's not all of his responsibility to the weaker brother. His responsibility also is to bring the weaker brother to greater levels of maturity by instructing him, teaching him, and encouraging him. Make sense? Next, I want you to recognize that it is always the weaker brother's responsibility not to remain the weaker brother, but to seek to grow in Christ-likeness and maturity. And I am saying this because I'm scared to death that some of you are going to abuse this text today and say something like, see, you just got to tolerate me. Like some of you are just going to like wear the weaker brother vest like it's, a, like it's a badge of honor and say, I am the weaker brother. I don't have anything together. And the Bible says you just got to put up with me. And I'm going to continue to make messes all over the place. And you've just got to continue to put up with me. I don't want you to abuse the text that way. All right? So, so hear me clearly. Like we, we've got to tolerate, put up with, educate, instruct, seek the maturity of the weaker brother. But you, you can't just stay the weaker brother, man. You just can't just want to stay the weaker brother. I'll give you the picture of this. It's bouncing around in my head all week. It's our supper table. We've got a, a range of children's ages, right? Sophie is 17 and Asher is eight, all right? And Laura's not going to say it. I'm going to say it. 
She's a little sensitive about it. We've got a variety of ages around our table. Occasionally, all of us will spill our drink, all right? Just an accident. We're all prone to do it. In fact, I believe by telling this story, I'm putting myself in prime position to make a huge mess today, right? If Asher spills more than anyone else, right? If you come to our house, and some of you are tonight, you can pick Asher's chair out of all of them. Like, it's, it's, it's messy. But he's eight. He's eight. He's going to make messes. And I have some tolerance for his messes, right? Because he's growing. He's making less messes now than he did three years ago or four years ago. He's getting better. He's growing. That's what we want to see. If, if Asher spills his drink three times this week, it's kind of like, man, come on. If Sophie spills her drink three times this week, we're going to say, do we need to go to the doctor? Like, is something wrong with the connection between your brain and your hands? Like, you shouldn't be spilling your drink every day. You catch what's going on here? Some of you spill your drink all the time. And you've been sitting at the table for 40 years. Let's grow. Let's grow out of that. Let's grow in our maturity. But for those of you who are new to the table... You're going to make messes, and, and we're, we're okay with that. Like, really okay with that. If you're new to the walk of faith, it's going to be stumbly, it's going to be messy, it's going to be dirty, and, and, and we're okay with that. But what we're not okay is just saying, let's just stay there. Just stay there and don't worry about it. Just keep making messes, and we'll keep cleaning them up. Rather, we want to say, come on. Come on, let's, let's grow. We'll put a handle on that cup, or lid on it maybe, right? And, and we'll try to make fewer and fewer messes as we go. That's our obligation to you. So he says, one of the things we do when we put on these clothes of the new man is we, uh, we bear with one another, tolerate one another, we put up with one another. And he says, we forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's huge, right? Part of putting on Christ-like character is being gracious to the people around us. We must remember that we have been forgiven much. I talked with a guy this week, and, and I hope you're going to hear from him in just a minute. I talked to a guy this week who refreshingly spoke of his pre-conversion experience, like his life before he came to know Christ, with this profound sense of awe and amazement that God would save a guy like him. It was just a beautiful thing. Several times he said, I quote, if Jesus can forgive a guy like me, shoot, there's hope for everyone. Right? That's my story too. That's your story if you are in Christ. We should be amazed that we've been forgiven like we have been forgiven. And if you think you haven't been forgiven much, you haven't been forgiven. If you think that God's forgiveness of you was like minor league forgiveness, like you didn't have much to be forgiven of, you don't know what forgiveness is. We are all major league sinners. Major league sinners who have been given major league grace. And we should be profoundly thankful. And as those who have been forgiven much, we must forgive much. Jesus tells a story to drive this point home from the other side of the equation. You've heard me make reference to it a thousand times. You probably know the story. There was a slave who owed his master gazillions of dollars. Right, More money than the emperor would earn in his entire lifetime. Right, He owed the master more than he could ever hope to pay. And so he goes to his master and he says, I can't repay it. Have mercy on me. And you know what the master does? Forgives him his debt. 
forgives him this massive debt, doesn't hold it against him, doesn't put him on a payment plan, just wipes it away, forgives him completely, and sets him loose. That's, that's us, right? We've been forgiven like that. But you know what that slave does? He goes immediately and finds a buddy of his who owes him some pocket change. He says, pay me what you owe me. And the guy says, I can't, I can't, I just don't, I just don't have it. In the same way that this guy appealed to the master, his friend appeals to him, I don't have the means to pay it. Have mercy on me and forgive me. And you know what that slave does to his friend? The Bible says, in Jesus' story, chokes him out. You pay me every last dime you owe me. Needless to say, the master has terrible things to say about that slave after he responds to his grace that way. Friends, we've been forgiven gazillions we can therefore forgive the people around us who owe us relatively little. And hear me clearly, what your friends around you owe you is relatively little. It is relatively little, no matter how big you think it is, compared to what the Lord has forgiven you. So let's forgive one another. Notice in the text, Paul doesn't say, do these things or else. Do these things or or else the wrath of God will come upon you. Do these things or else judgment is coming. He doesn't motivate us in this text toward godliness with threats. He does that in other places. That's not off the table. But this text is not that way. Rather, in this text, he motivates us to godliness by reminding us of who we are and reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ. He says, do this because it's who you are. Do this because of your identity in Christ. You are holy, beloved, chosen of God. Therefore, put on these new clothes, bear with one another, forgive one another. But notice what happens in verse 14. Paul says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Like he often does, Paul elevates love as the greatest of virtues. The Greek word here for love is a unique one. In the Greek language, there are several words for love. There's a special word for brotherly love. There's a special word for like romantic love. The Greek word that's used here is agape, which you may know represents this godly, self-sacrificing love that seeks the good of another, even at great personal cost. It is the love that Christ showed us when he died for us. Above all, put on agape. Above all, put on love. And when we put on this kind of love in our relationships with each other, we will find the complete, perfect bond of unity. It will bring us together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, just before he went to the cross to die for our sins, he said this to his disciples in John chapter 13. Look at it on the screen. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right? Above all, put on love which will bind us together in perfect unity and in perfect peace. So here are the applications. There are like 17 of them this week. Number one, are you in Christ? We really got to deal with that before we deal with anything else. Because if you are not in Christ, you can't put on these clothes. Like if you're not in Christ, you won't bear with one another. You won't forgive one another. You won't put on love. Like if you're not in Christ, that's not... It's not for you. This message is not for you if you are not in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, you can become in Christ today. You come to be in Christ today. Repent of your sins and trust in him. 
today. Be reconciled to God today. Put your faith in him today. If you are in Christ, though, church, church, if you are in Christ, rejoice in who you are. You are chosen of God. You are holy. You are beloved. He loves you. Rejoice in that. Don't get puffy or proud, but rejoice in that. That's who you are, and you are who he says you are. And as new creatures put on Christ-likeness in your character, especially in this imperfect community that we've got around here at First Baptist Church, we got imperfection around here, don't we? Therefore, we need compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. If you are, let me say it this way, if you are chosen of God, holy and beloved, these attributes make sense. If you are holy, chosen of God, beloved, you know what doesn't make sense? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. If you are chosen of God, holy and beloved, you know what does not make sense for you to wear? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying. Like if you are chosen of God, holy and beloved, you've taken off those things. So take them off and put on humility and kindness and patience, right? That's who you are. Wear those clothes around here in our relationships with one another. Bear with one another. Tolerate one another, put up with one another, seek the growth of one another, forgive one another, forgive one another, forgive one another, forgive one another, like 17 of the points are forgive one another. Why? Because you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven, and all too often we're like that wicked slave who takes the freedom the master has granted to us chokes out our neighbor because of what they owe. Let's be forgiving people. And let's put on love, which binds the whole thing together. Binds us all together in the perfect unity, in perfect peace. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we want to pray for men and women and boys and girls who may be among us, who are not part of the family, They're not part of your people, but they want to be. So today I pray that you'll give them repentance to turn away from sin, faith to trust in Jesus Christ, that you'll bring them in by your grace and for your glory. And for those who are yours, for the church, I pray that you will help us to rejoice in this identity of ours, that we are chosen by you and holy and beloved. And that as those kind of people will put on clothes that make sense for those kind of people, compassion and kindness, gentleness, humility and patience. Father, help us to live that out practically as we engage with one another, that we will bear with one another, put up and tolerate with one another, that we will be forgiving one another, not seven times, not seven times, seven times, but 70 times, seven times, that we will be a people who are marked by grace, marked by forgiveness because we have tasted it. We have tasted it from you. We have been forgiven. Make us forgiving people.
And God, I pray on top of all of this, above all of this, that we'll put on love, that will bind us together, that we will love one another. And that all men will know that we belong to you because we love one another. God, we want to grow. We want to be the people you've made us to be. So give us right response to your grace today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.